You're listening to Table Talks for Life, a Life for Life podcast that prepares youth to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Be sure to stick around after today's live recording to find out how you can be engaged in upholding life too. Hello and welcome to today's Table Talks for Life. We are going to be doing our special podcast today on what's on the table, right? So this is the opportunity for us to talk about what's been in the news lately. And we're going to start off uh, with our first story. Uh, Our intern brought in a great story. We're going to let her introduce it. Um, It's a pretty good uplifting story. So Kate, go for it. So my story is about a newborn baby boy who was left in a safe haven box in Tennessee. Um, I am a little bit biased because I am from Tennessee. However, this was a national news story. So I've seen a lot of pro-life news outlets lately just reporting on mothers who have been unfortunately leaving their babies in garbage cans or abandoning them in other safe places or unsafe places. So maybe some of our listeners have seen that. Um, But I thought this story was so fun because anytime a newborn baby is safely surrendered to authorities, it's definitely a cause for celebration that this baby was given the opportunity to have life. Um, That's not something that is easy for a mother to do. So this is a 30-minute old baby and safe haven boxes. If you don't know a lot about them, what they do is they just automatically lock after the baby is placed in there and it um, keeps the baby warm. It's temperature controlled. It's a little bassinet, so it's good and cozy for them. And then firefighters are alerted two minutes after the baby is placed in the box. A little alarm goes off. And then that way the mother has time to um, walk away and leave the baby and remain anonymous after surrendering her baby. Um, And then after that, the babies are taken to the hospital just to make sure that they're good and healthy. And then they are taken to the Department of Children's Services for foster care placement until an adoptive family can be found for them. So I just want to encourage everyone to look into safe haven laws in your state, find out what they are. Um, And if you have a local safe haven baby box near you, tell people about them. They're really awesome. They're great to know about. They're a great resource um, for life in our communities. So I thought that was a fun story. And then I just, a couple of questions I thought we could talk about about that is, As gospel-motivated voices for life, how can we encourage pregnant mothers who may be struggling with whether they want to put up their baby for adoption or maybe they're thinking about surrendering their baby to a safe haven box, you know, maybe we won't directly know someone in this situation, but I think it's good to have an idea of what kind of conversation that might, that would look like. Yeah. And before, before that kind of conversation too, like just knowing where those safe haven boxes are, right? and being an advocate for them in your community. I mean, of the four of us, how many of our communities have those safe haven boxes? I don't think my community has a safe haven box, but I know that in the story, Kate, it also said that you could take them to a local hospital. So I'm wondering, and I don't know many, like if anyone in my community has used that, but I think the hospital option is also there. So letting them know that if there's not a safe haven box, take them to your law enforcement agency or the uh, the hospital. Yeah, and and knowing your safe haven laws in your state because there's a certain amount of time that mothers have after the baby is born. So make sure you know those by your state as well. Yeah, and knowing those, you know, knowing those laws, knowing how to how to talk to, maybe um, just to share the information. Right, like you said, Kate, we may never know someone personally who's going to make that choice. Right. But but maybe if you're a life team out there, if you're if you have the opportunity to post it on social media, just so women know. Right. Um, It's 
course, the best option is always uh, to support the mother and the child and keep the two of them together. That's the healthiest, healthiest outcome for the child in the long run. But this is definitely a better option than some of the other other videos you've talked about, right? That actually cares for the child and alleviates some of that fear and and what a mother would see as as burden. You're right. You, what do you, other things do you think we could do or could talk about? Um, how how could we share this this news? And how could we like? There are some people who are very much against the safe haven box. So it came up in my community uh, about I would say like maybe a year year and a half ago, and uh, the city council chose not to put one in, and it was a real disappointment for a lot of people. Um, where I live. So there's obviously some pushback. So what other conversations could we have, even if we're not necessarily having the conversation with a woman who's making that choice, definitely sharing the benefits of a safe haven box uh, in your community before it comes to a vote vote might be be good. Can you describe the the nature of the pushback? Like, is it actually pro-life people who see that as like a failure or, and so they they think- I think the the purpose or, you know, some of the of the commentary was, you know, um, we're encouraging mothers to to uh, forsake their babies rather than encouraging them to or uh, enabling them to care for their children, which, you know, again, certainly the safe haven box is not the it's not the first choice. Right. We do want to intervene and to uphold life and and keep the family united. Uh, We know that that children um, do best when they, uh, in general, do best when they are living with their their biological parents, when they know who their biological parents are, right? So this this safe haven box takes that that ability away from the child. And yet we know it's a great act of mercy for that child, right? If If the other option is exposure or neglect, this is, this is a wonderful option uh, to care for a baby. But yeah, some some for life voices said, you know, there's what we should be doing is is upholding the lives of the of the mother and child. So and you had for life people on both sides arguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess you just in speaking with those with that opposition, you do have to emphasize, like, by no means are we saying this is the the solution right to unplanned pregnancies it's it's just addressing realities that are happening like these news stories that have been yeah they've been circulating more lately just children being like newborn babies being abandoned in really awful places and and that's not a new thing so you know we of course are supporting pregnancy resource centers and um would every that's sort of a last resort right to to catch sort of the people who haven't been been picked up with other types of care, preventative care to, to empower them to keep their baby at the very least, you know, let your baby have a chance at life. If for some reason, no other options are available to you. And I think some women are just uninformed about pregnancy resource centers, or they just heard so many lies about them that they're afraid to go there. So I think also just supporting those places and making sure people know the truth about what they do there. But I think there's also a lot of lies about putting your baby up for adoption that women hear, or they think it's going to cost them something, or they're they're just afraid of that option. And so while even that would be probably a better option in that they might be able to 
choose an open adoption or something in which their baby would know them, women just aren't educated on that. So that's another reason that the safe haven boxes um, exist and are, and are useful. And I like that you pointed out knowing the safe haven laws. I think in the article that you're uh, referring to, it was like two weeks, right? They have two weeks after their baby is born before they would be prosecuted in any way, right? You can't just abandon your child, um, your born child. And so legally, and so it's really important for people to know, you know, of course, again, we hope that they they choose to stay with their child, like maybe their mind has changed, but that that they do know that they have a, a, a certain amount of time where if for some reason they just cannot take care of that child, like there's no risk, right? Like you are going to, somebody is going to be there for that baby. Um, they're going to be taken to the hospital. There's like systems in place, you know, like the, the it's, it's in the side of a fire station. Is that right? Is that um, how that works? This particular one is, yeah. In the right. Side of so like the baby is safe and you are not going to be liable, right? Like we'd rather have the baby safe and alive and then cared for by someone else than, than you, you know, just decide not to care for your baby and not find somebody to take care of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, you bring up a good point too about women not knowing resources, knowing about resources, but even even those that do, or those who do, you know, that pregnancy may have been one that was beget in in ways that, you know, are are difficult to handle. Um, there may be a dangerous situation for the child in the home, right? Um, and and maybe this is an act of mercy and love, the greatest act of mercy and love that that a woman, that a mother can give her child um, to provide that safe space. So. Yeah, I I am all for safe haven boxes and most often they are associated or connected with you know with fire stations that seems to be across the country the most common place. And this isn't just something that's happening in America, right? It's happening in other areas of the world. There's a really great movie um, or documentary about this type of thing happening in Korea um, in particular with children with disabilities, right? Because in Korea, they the cultural expectation is that you would you would not care for a child with disabilities and or that you would hide that child away. And so so again, um, a Christian individual has has come forward and in this case and provided home, a home and and um, support for those babies' lives. And that's those are acts of mercy right? That's, that's being Christ to your neighbor. And so, yeah, I think safe haven boxes are wonderful ways to respond to, to a really sad reality, right? A broken reality. And I also think that it, it kind of responds to the whole idea that like, we only care about the birth of the child or, or like the woman until she's pregnant, these kinds of things. Like, that were motivated by keeping women down or something like that. And I think that something like this really just shows like, we just want, we're not trying to punish women, right? Like the whole point of this is that there isn't legal repercussions. We truly just care about life. Like we want, we don't want people being killed in this, these situations. And so as a last resort, if this is what it has to come to, then by all means, like, just don't, don't end your child's life because you feel like you can't take care of him or her. Yeah, I think one of the one of the connections you made, Kate, um, as you're kind of preparing for this, was the whole idea of 
of postpartum depression, anxiety, which again, could very well play into that decision. And I mean, I think you ask a good question, right? How can we um, uphold the lives of mothers? How can we encourage them uh, if they're struggling with postpartum so that they don't have to make this choice so that, so that caring for a newborn uh, doesn't feel quite so overwhelming. So ideas about that. What do you guys think? I think my point in asking that question was we might not know someone that is considering giving up their baby, but they might be having a hard time for other reasons. And so I think this is the best way that we can prevent people from having to do so is supporting moms after they give birth. I mean, I'm not a mom yet. I know I've heard some things like ask the mom how she's really doing. Don't just ask about baby, Um, you know, do what you can for her around her house. But Again, I wanted to pose this question to you guys because you guys are all moms, so you've all been there. So, yeah. I would say, I'm sorry, Michelle, go ahead. No, go for it, Bonnie. I was just going to say on the, the topic of, yeah, postpartum depression and anxiety and also like postpartum, I think psychosis is the term. It can just really spiral. And so somebody who may not, you know, may be perfectly prepared for the baby, have been expecting it, be excited for it, can have like very intrusive thoughts about about them themselves, but also about their child. And so, first of all, super important that moms know that that can happen because then they need to know that they need to tell someone. Because like, why would you want to admit that you're having those feelings, you know, about this baby that you're, that you do love? And, um, but that's, it's like so important to, to catch that early and be treated for it. The point being someone who is suddenly having those thoughts might feel like, I can't be a mom. What in the world is going on? Like, I'm not safe with this baby those kinds of things. Um, so that could be a, a situation I can see where someone might, you know, a safe haven box might be a resource for them, or maybe they might be tempted to use that. And by us checking in on people, that's a, that's a place where we could catch that and treat it. And then they wouldn't need to use something like that because it's a very temporary condition that can be treated if it's caught. And so just like you were saying, Kate, checking in on them and asking them how they're doing, not just how the baby's doing exactly. Um, and really taking time to see what they need and just ask how they're feeling and even asking, yeah, like if they're having depressive thoughts, thoughts of hurting themselves or, or their baby um, are really important. Yeah. I think that's exactly true. Bonnie checking in on people, checking in on new mothers, especially well, and it can hit with any child. And just because it hits with one pregnancy doesn't mean it will hit with another pregnancy. So, so checking in is important, uh, whether it's first or last pregnancy or, you know, somewhere in between. Um, but I think also the way that we talk about um, postpartum feelings, normalizing the idea that it's, a, it's, it's hormones are raging, right? And, and changing drastically and depending on what happened during birth. Sometimes there's some trauma that the body is recovering from. And because we are so knit together, we are not just bodies, right? But we are, and we are not just hormones, we are not just our sexuality, but woven together. So when we are hurting physically, when we are recovering physically, uh, that is a strain also on our, our mental and emotional health as well. So, you know, especially someone who had a traumatic birth, the, the idea that you might be having some, some trauma uh, emotionally, it's, it's not surprising, 
And noticing, noticing it pretty early is important. Um, Speaking about it, normalizing the idea that we should be speaking about our mental health after a, a child is born, because it's not just hormones, but it's also lack of sleep, which enhances hormones and emotions. And, and, you know, having someone that you feel safe enough to talk to about it, whether that's a, your spouse or a friend or your mother or your mother-in-law or whatever the case may be, but, but knowing who those people are in your life that you can depend on. Like, I remember with my own firstborn son, it was a very traumatic birth, um, very difficult and and dangerous. Um, both of us almost died during that process. And so my healing was very different with my first child than it was with my second child, right? And I had good friends and I had a husband who were watching not only my physical recovery, but also, you know, mental, emotional recovery. And I thank God for them because when you are in that, you are in that dark place uh, where you are, you know, you just, your body isn't doing what, what you want it to do. And your mind isn't doing what you want it to do. It's very easy as a first time mom to think, oh man, I am so bad at this. Right. And, and there's just such a huge learning curve. So talking about it, making it acceptable to talk about it, to recognize that, that healing in, in after birth has to happen. It's a joyful time, but it also, yeah, it's, it's a time for healing as well. So I think there's some things we can do that on the front end uh, to prepare for that possibility and to make it okay to reach out for help. Right. So Corey, I can see you, you're ready. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I just was going to say too, I am five months postpartum for my second. And that was my experience of, you know, postpartum with my first was really easy. I just had the normal quote unquote baby blues. Um, but this go around, like I, I do have some anxiety and some postpartum anxiety that went with that. So just like you all said, knowing who to reach out to, but also realizing that like there, there are medications that you can take if you need that. And so like, that's for me, I mean, I have my support system, but I also needed that little bit of extra. So I take a medication for it. And I've noticed that for me, it's really helped with my anxiety. I mean, there's still things there that I'm having to deal with and talk through with people, but it's much more manageable. And I mean, I remember telling my husband that I just had this feeling of panic sitting in my chest at all times, and that's not comfortable. So like, talk to people about that. You don't want that feeling just sitting there. And I mean, just in general, anybody dealing with those feelings should talk to someone about it, um, whether that be a friend and find, you know, you know, a doctor or someone to talk to. But especially when you're postpartum, it's really hard. Like Michelle, you said, with all those hormones, you're not sure what is balancing out what what you're feeling. And that lack of sleep just makes it 10 times worse because you can't regulate the same way. So I just, as someone who is in the thick of it right now, and it has gotten better in the last three months since I've, you know, been on a better routine, I should say, it's still something that, you know, I deal with and you take it day by day. But yeah, definitely checking in and finding those ways to help someone. And even just, you know, again, we've talked about ask the mom how she is, have those conversations with her, even if it's not about anything related to baby, she may just want to talk to someone because she's with an infant 24 seven, you know? So those are, those are my thoughts. Yeah. Social health, social health is important too. And, and God gives us the gift of medicine, right? Medicine is not, 
is is not inherently evil. Um, we need to recognize that God works through that as well. So yeah. Well, look at that, Kate. This happy, this beautiful story about a baby being saved has has led into some really, you know, deep discussions. And we're just gonna delve deeper. <laughs> so Bonnie's story is up next. Go for it, Bonnie. Yes, I'm sorry. I just want to add one more thing related to to speaking to moms, which is that the original question was about gospel-motivated voice. And I would say that postpartum is one place where there's a huge opportunity to to be open about your faith, even with somebody who is not Christian and maybe wouldn't have been receptive to that in the past. Because it is just, if you ever felt like you couldn't do it on your own and you were dependent on other people, it is postpartum. And so that's just an opportunity where you can really, even just saying like, I am praying for you and you, you, telling them like, God be with you. Um, you know, telling them what you're praying f- about them for them can just be really meaningful. And, and somebody might be a lot more receptive to it in that time of their life than they might be other times. My story is a little bit less uplifting than Kate's, but I think actually they're very connected. So this is an article from the guardian so obviously not a pro-life or pro-life, necessarily pro-life friendly um, source, but the, the headline is outrage at jail sentence for woman who took abortion pills after UK limit. So this is a UK based story. Uh, this came out just this morning, actually, that a judge has ruled to sentence a woman to a little over two years, I think 28 months in prison. She she had a medication abortion and it was discovered that that the, the abortion took place far after the 10 week cutoff for medication abortion, but even the like generally legal 24 week limit in the UK. And so it was just very far past anything that was even legal in the, the area. And she did it by their like pills by post. I'm sure many of you have seen in the news, just that medication abortions are readily available in the mail online, super, super easy to access. And so she she obtained it by mail, and then she had a telehealth appointment prior to that, um, and basically just lied about how far along she was. This happened during COVID, and so that was, I think, kind of the reason why she didn't have an ultrasound to confirm how far along she was. There just wasn't that in-person aspect. And anyway, it was discovered that she had done this far past the legal limit, and doctors actually found that the fetus was more like 32 to 34 weeks along rather than 28 weeks along. So very late term abortion. It went to court, obviously, and she's now been sentenced to over two years in prison. And so this is just a very hard, sad situation. Um, But I think it's something that brings up a lot of different questions regarding abortion, access to abortion pills. Um, So I guess to start, like, what should we make of the legality and safety of having chemical abortion pills available by mail? Like, do pills by mail with only a telehealth visit before kind of, do they set women up for success to stay within the legal limit? Of course, disclaimer, we don't think that abortion should be legal at any point. Um, But does it kind of almost tempt mothers to skirt the law like this mom did? What do we think about that? Yeah, I definitely think abortion pills should not be accessed by mail. Um, yeah, it is a temptation, right? But also it's not safe for the woman. Even if we, even if we were pro-choice, which obviously we are not when you, I mean, the whole reason she was caught is because she had to 
had to call for medical help, right? And she had to be hospitalized because um, the baby at that size is way too large for an abortion pill to do the delivery, right? And so the, the chance for bleeding out, the chance for hemorrhaging increases phenomenally. You, there's lots of statistics on that, right? Even, even up to starting at 13 weeks, um, the risk of death is tremendously high. And um, it's very clear, you know, this, this was used as she knew, right? She was beyond the, the 10 weeks. And this was a way to get an abortion, that had some really serious health consequences for her. So I think just the idea of doing it by mail, that's not, that's not health care, right? So very often it's sold to us as health care. But healthcare involves, in this case, in the case of pregnancy, checking on the fetal development. It involves always the health of the woman and taking a look at what's best for her. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna come out and just say no. Abortion pills should not be offered via mail. Right. Even from even if we were pro-choice here on a pro-choice podcast, it's just a bad idea. Like whatever you think about what the what abortion is, it's not healthy for the mother. Uh, it's very dangerous. I would agree. Well, and I think too, that's been something that they've brought up a lot here in the U.S. of should we make this available in all 50 states or should we sell these over over the counter, things like that. I think that also is one of those things where it's like, if there's no doctor's visit and you're not talking to someone in person to get all of the facts about your pregnancy, it really shouldn't be a consideration at all. You know, like it's just, and they brought up multiple times at the end of the article, people brought up, well, it's healthcare. And I was sitting there, I'm like, sending someone pills in the mail is not healthcare. Like if you're not talking to a doctor, it's not, it's not the same thing as ordering a supplement online, right? You're, you're putting your life at risk, not just the babies, but the mothers as well. So I, I'm going to agree and say that it's not okay to have those available by mail. And it's, it's not okay to do, in my opinion, not okay to do anything related to pregnancy over the computer unless it's just like a quick check-in phone call of like I missed my I missed my 18 week appointment and that's not one where they do anything big at so you know just I think that yeah I agree with you totally Michelle that it's not something we should endorse whether we are pro-choice or pro-life so what do you guys think about the sentence right so we are obviously pro-life for life for the whole life for all lives what do we think about criminalizing abortion in this way? A lot of times, I mean, this is kind of something that the the opposite side kind of fear mongers people with, like women are going to jail and yeah. And I suppose my first reaction is, yeah, I mean, like abortion is murder. I think we can say that and we shouldn't back down from saying that. And you, you can't just, you know, women, it's sad, but women shouldn't, I mean, it's hard to say because of the culture that we live in, but, but abortion is taking a life. And so you do need to be held responsible. But on the other hand, you know, what about the abortion providers, the doctors, all of the other people involved? And like, what do you think is the best way to go about that? So, so I'm going to bring it back to theology, right? (laughs) It's the kingdom of the right and the kingdom of the left. And 
God's word, when we, when God acts in his, you know, like in, in foreign ways, when he acts with the law, the law does say no abortions after this time, right? And no abortions. And and, and she was well past the, the legal time, not only for a, a, a chemical abortion, a abortion via pill, but also um, an, a, an abortion like in person, right? Going to the doctor, having the abortion. And, and so the law, the government has a role here, right? Now we can debate whether we, we agree and we want to change that law. And of course, this isn't a law in America. It's a law in England. Um, and we can debate, debate laws, but we can't, we shouldn't be debating whether the government shows mercy because the government, the laws of a state are not there for mercy. The laws of the state are there to protect lives, to protect the innocent, to, to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. And there I am, you know, using a biblical passage, but, but that's really what the government is there for. And so in this case, the judge is upholding a law of the country, right? And so the judge is doing his proper work in in England. Now, the gospel says this woman is forgiven and uh, this woman's life should be upheld. And this woman, even though she may have consequences, is still loved by God, right? And so she is experiencing some consequences from, from the country she's living in. And, and so, you know, the debate again in the America, in America, should it be, should it be a law? I'll let you, the others uh, jump in on that. And then I may jump in uh, again uh, at the end, but I think we do have to, as Christians recognize that there's two roles, right? That there is, there is the role of the government, but there is also the church and the church's response to this is forgiveness. It is upholding her life. It is making sure she gets uh, the emotional uh, and and physical care that she needs. Whether it's, I mean, if you read the article, she was clearly suffering from some some post-abortion trauma, and so the the church steps in and says. This is how we uphold her life. Doesn't matter what she has done. She is a loved individual, a loved child of God. And so we step in in that way, right? And so that's that would be LFL's response, right? We're we're not going to mess with the laws, um, but what we are going to say is this woman deserves to be cared for because because she is handmade by God and redeemed by Jesus, right? So, um, but as far as the law, you know, again, that's, that's, that is up to the country and up to the Christian citizens. So what do you think as a Christian citizen? What do others think? I am of the thought with abortion, whether it's chemical or surgical, any of those things, oftentimes the mother is choosing that route because she's scared or intimidated. It's not something that, I mean, necessarily, I hope she's not choosing it because she wants to do it. And she's just that, harsh towards the views of children or gifts, you know, like I, I would hope that it's, it's something that she is, there's a fear there of some sort, right? That's why it's a choice that women make. So I've always, I've always had the thought of, yes, the woman has made a choice, but there are others in her life that have helped her come to that choice or helped her 
like carry out that action. You know, the doctors should also be held culpable, in my opinion, if you're going to hold the woman culpable. It's not just her making that decision. She obviously had to either get a prescription and have the have the medication set to her or go to the Planned Parenthood and have the procedure done um, or go to the hospital and have the procedure done. So I think that it's not it's not something that we should put all on the woman, but there's other people to look at as well. And I know that's kind of kind of an escapist answer a little bit, but like I said, there's a there's a lot of fear that goes into it when it comes to a choice like that 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 woman is obviously something is driving her to make that decision out of fear and not out of love. And so I think you have to look at everybody responsible, not just the woman. I totally agree, Corey. And I I can't help thinking that this, this push for by mail or over the counter, super accessible uh, medication abortion pills while abortion restrictions are thankfully going in a, a better direction, right? Like, especially in America um, with the, the reversal of Roe v. Wade, it's just totally setting you up for failure. It's like having cocaine be legal or, or like it's legal in some circumstances only and then selling it, right? Like these are so available and then being like, oh, now we're going to get you, you know, it's, it's, of course, you're still breaking the law. And Michelle, exactly what you said, it's the kingdom the kingdom of the left. And so it's it's the law, but it's like, why are we setting women up to fail in this situation? You're incentivizing sort of the illegality by letting it be so free and accessible. Right. I mean, the, the easy answer is not to have pills sold via telehealth, right? Not to have mail order pills. I mean, yeah, it was a temptation. She gave into temptation, but it was also an oversight of whoever was caring for her. I mean, that's, there is lots of culpability there. Absolutely. You want to weigh in Kate? Yeah, I think I'm kind of on the same page as everyone. I think I tend to lean towards having more compassion for the women. And I mean, I think at this point in our culture, like we are just aren't all on the same page that life begins at conception. And I think the people that at this point in time should really be held accountable are the abortion clinic workers, those doctors and nurses. I don't know if anyone's read The Walls Are Talking by Abby Johnson, but it's stories um, from former abortion clinic workers. And if you think they don't know what they're doing, they know what they are doing. They know that they are taking lives every single day. But just in this discussion, I just thought of a Martin Luther quote that I thought I would share about um, worldly government. It says... Although worldly government does not make people righteous before God, nevertheless, it is instituted in order to accomplish at least this much, so that the good may have outward peace and protection, and the bad may not be free to do evil in peace and quietness and without fear. So I think the part of that that I really like is making sure that we have those laws in place that protect women, protect life, and we don't let people just run around doing evil in peace and quietness. Like, you should be afraid to be doing the wrong thing. Yeah. And we know God does work through government to do that, right? Whether no matter what government we have, we know that God God can work good even through even through those things that were intended for evil, right? And so um but one of the one of the things he clearly defines is that government and order um these these are gifts from him, though obviously broken by sin, um he can still and desires still to uphold life through them, right? So so I, I wouldn't say that the law is wrong, 
And I wouldn't say that the judge is wrong. And yet, perhaps there are are other laws that need to go in place, right? Other laws that protect a woman and, and protect an unborn child. And certainly that woman needs care, right? Um, I'm not sure that, in fact, I'm certain that being in prison is not going to provide the care she needs. So, uh, and that's, that's tragic. That is tragic. I don't want to take up any more time on this one, though I suppose we could. It's amazing how much time you can talk about one little thing. But Corey, I'll pass it to you to talk if you are ready. Yeah. So my story also comes from England. And the National Health Service in England has decided that they will not be providing puberty blockers to children at gender identity clinics. I guess in normal circumstances. The story does say that if it's an exceptional circumstance, they will continue to offer those medications, but it's one that there there's not any real studies on, and so that's why they say we can't offer these to children. And so, I mean, there's a lot of thoughts in this, but the story that I found is basically just the facts of the case. So I guess I want to talk about they're not going to offer these puberty blockers except for in extreme circumstances. And so I just want to know what you guys think of like extreme circumstances. And do you think that leaves a lot of room for interpretation? Um, Especially as we've talked about people getting away with telehealth visits and stuff like that and, and accepting medications that way. I would want to know more, you know, like I'm sure that, there is information out there that kind of describes maybe more what they mean by exceptional circumstances. First of all, I'm just so happy to like reading this, just it's a turn in the right direction. And so any win is a win, you know, um, that they're even willing to say that when here right now, like if any uh, psychiatrist or therapist kind of even says that they're hesitant about giving these, it's like, well, you are not on board and goodbye. You know, we're not associating with you. So anyway, yeah, maybe, I guess we'll, I would imagine we'll just have to wait and see how it does get used. Like, will it really be reserved? I would imagine that people will be excited that a government organization is actually like allowing them some room to do real therapy and actually care for these children. Um, So I'm hopeful that, that it will be really exceptional because not that we endorse it at any point, but there are real cases of real gender dysphoria where people are are really struggling to understand their sexuality rather than sort of the social contagion that we've been seeing recently. Um, again, of course, at Y for Life, we don't believe that that's a, that that's a cause to, to go on puberty blockers, but the, that if they were just relegated to those, to those situations, those people, um, I think we will see a dramatic decrease in the use of puberty, puberty blockers. Yeah, I too am very excited to to see. Um, and I think, you know, England is not the only country that's doing this, but there are lots of European countries that are putting some stops on the gender, on the, on the gender medications, the puberty blockers, and then the the sex transition uh, therapies, because uh, some others, other countries have actually done some research and seen the negative, negative long-term effects on um, especially cross-gender hormones um, on individuals, including bone loss, the lack of development of the brain. 
and, and some some permanencies, right? So there's this idea that puberty blockers, if we just block it for a time, when we turn those puberty hormones back on, uh, the body can just pick up where it left off. But the truth is, that's not true. Uh, the truth is, uh, what the what medicine shows is that there is a certain time frame in our life in which those those hormones develop our body in ways that are necessary for adulthood. And so, you know, like you, I am I'm excited to see that they're even considering the possibility that of, of blocking them or of at least holding back, right? Not everybody who wants uh, hormone blockers can can access them. Certainly, like you asked, Corey, I'm sure because of the brokenness of sin, right, that's going to be abused and taken advantage of. Um, but the very fact that that they're putting up warning signs, that they're they're increasing the likelihood that someone cannot access it easily. Uh, to me, that's that's really exciting um, and very life affirming for young people. If we look also at studies, uh, young people who struggle with their gender, with the again, with the exception of of gender dysphoria and some of the the um, very real health conditions, um, what we do see is is that most confusion um, that teens in particular face is rectified or at least you know no longer confusion um, by the time that person reaches their their mid-20s their early to mid-20s and so that gives us hope too right that sometimes just in postponing medications or postponing uh, medical treatment that would that would be long lasting um, actually allows for for what is is natural, right? The the genetics uh, to do their work, the hormones to do their work, and for some of that, that maybe that angst that is typical of, especially the teenage years, uh, to work itself out. So, yeah, I think this is a very positive move. Yeah. So then, I guess one of the other things that I kind of thought of in this, um, just thinking about the evidence in all of this, is that. Um, it said they were going to do some more research on the outcomes of these these things, whether it's just the therapies or the clinic, those sorts of things. But I also thought a lot about how we oftentimes say, well, people under 18 can't properly give consent. So I want to know what your thoughts is, are. Um, is it ethical to test these drugs or these therapies on these children who can't give consent? You know, Obviously, the research studies aren't going to be a clinical research study like we think of, but if if we are for-life people who say, well, these people can't consent to this, is it at all ethical to even collect data on those who are taking it in those extreme circumstances? Well, I think with children, obviously there are studies that are done on children for different health you know, treatments that they're going through because we do want to know, but it's it, true. It is a very difficult thing because you do not want to exploit kids, especially uh, with things that we think might have adverse effects and adverse like spiritual effects on them, which we obviously altering your identity in this way is, is going to kind of splinter your identity and cause some problems. I think that we are all comfortable saying like, we we kind of already know the outcomes while we don't know the specifics. um, It's not good for these kids to live against the way that God created them. At the same time, if they, they are going to be on puberty blockers, 
we might as well study it. Maybe that's not ethical to say. I don't want to <laughs> speak out of turn, but but I do, I mean, in the service of the future of all of these children to have some data that says, look, we tried this and it did not work. Here's some hard facts that we can show you. You know, it is causing osteoporosis prematurely or other things that we might discover are coming out of being on these hormones. Those are just my initial thoughts. Yeah, and I think I I would want more more research to be able to answer that question. Like, are these people who have chosen to be on it because they don't feel at home in their own bodies? Are these people that are are experiencing gender dysphoria, true gender dysphoria, right? That that started very soon after birth or within the first five years of life. Um, are these young people who are struggling with genetic abnormalities, right? Um, do they have XXY or who is being studied? <laughs> because, you know, I, I would agree that this is, it certainly doesn't seem life affirming to allow some children to be test subjects just so we can gain information, right? But are they test subjects because because they, they need this type of care. That that's a hard one for me to answer without more information. Um, but in general, we should, my general answer is we should be protecting the lives of young people, right? They, they don't have the, the long-term capacity to make, well, to make decisions um, that have long-term consequences. We know that the frontal lobe is not developed until age at least 24, 25. Right. Um, So so it is that is it is a serious decision to make for a young person. Absolutely. If I can just add as well, it's always the practice when you're doing large scale treatments like this, it is studied, right? Like any treatment on this kind of scale, like they're always, always studying the outcomes of what these are doing to people, especially things like this where we've never done them before. And it's just insane that there aren't already studies being done. And so since they are giving them out willy-nilly in the United States, it's completely like scientifically irresponsible to not be following up with these kids. With anything else, they would be studying them. But it's just because it's been caught up in this agenda. It's almost how dare you even think that right. there could be negative effects from this. And so, I th- yeah, I think best case scenario, we stop giving them. We don't need to study it because nobody needs to transition because God created us the way that he made us. And um, ideally we're accepting that. But when puberty blockers are legal in the way that they are here, it's just totally unethical to not be watching the outcomes, the health outcomes of that for children. Yeah. And we, we do know that in some, in some cases, hormone therapy is an appropriate um, response to, to certain conditions. Right. Um, but the cross horm- hormones, we, we don't see that in, in regularly in our history, right? We just, we just don't see that uh, for young people. This it's new. You might see it with previous generations of people who are older and who have, have made that decision in their twenties or thirties. But we, yeah, we are embarking on new and scary territory and you're right. It it is, it is morally unethical (laughs) If we're going to be doing this, not to be tracking it, 
that's besides the point, even though I would say it's probably not even probably morally unethical to be doing it with children to begin with. So uh, this last question I have is just a quick answer I want from each of you. Um, do you think that this change in the UK will be seen in other countries, namely the US? Do you think we'll start seeing a shift of more awareness of the negatives and we'll, we'll see more US doctors saying, no, let's try other avenues first? I do. I do. I think over time, this is going to happen. I don't know that we will see it immediately, but we're already seeing people who regretted the, the, the hormone therapy. We're seeing young people who have now become adults and are now living with the consequences of the decisions uh, that they made under, I, I would say under very poor recommendations, medical recommendations. In fact, some, some young people are, are suing the medical field or different in individual doctors who gave them the advice to have double mastectomies or cross-hormone therapy. And they're now living with those consequences, right? So we're starting to see some of those stories come out. And I, I think it will take time. Um, I don't think it's just because of this research that's being done, but um, it is sort of interesting. Uh, if you look at, if you look at history, how, what happens in Europe, what happens in England usually ends up happening in America about 20 years later, 20 to 25 years later. But with the advent of social media, I'm not so sure 25 years is what's going <laughs> to, that we need 25 years um, for that that wave to hit us, right? Um, but even in America, we're already seeing young people who have who are regretting their transition and regretting their use of cross hormones and puberty blockers, that sort of thing. I think my answer would be that I certainly pray that we see this happen. I think we're already seeing states try and ban um, any sort of gender transition for minors, although there has been some pushback on that. I haven't fully followed it, but I know a couple of states have attempted to do that. And I think also parents are becoming more aware of this um, and pulling their kids out of public school or places that they um, any kind of agenda like this is being pushed that they're standing up for this and saying, this isn't right. We don't want our kids exposed to this. So I think like more parents becoming aware too will also help enact change for sure. I would agree. I think that aside from laws too, I just, I think that this sort of culture will have to shift away because it's just not sustainable, not to just always go back to the theological answer, but like God, God created us male and female. And so for an entire generation to kind of lose their mind a little bit and all start I'm sounding like such an old fogey <laughs> sorry <laughs> um <laughs> but just to um to live contrary to the way that they were created it's just it's not going to make you happy and people want to be happy they want to have peace um and I think it's just it is so much um sort of a social contagion type of thing that will run its course and People will realize it's ruining families, um, it's ruining lives, it's taking lives, and that hopefully, yeah, hopefully in fewer than 25 years, we'll see a shift back away from that. I hope so too. And you're right. It is a false, it's a false happiness, right? It is a, a false answer to the void of, of identity, right? Um, when we, as Christians, we know our identity is founded uh, and shaped by by God himself, founded in and shaped by God himself. And, and true peace, true rest, true, true joy uh, is found in him. And, you know, in a, in a society that 
wants to be full of people that want to be their own gods, um, they're going to look internally and they're going to look at, at how can they uh, make their own happiness. And it's not just in the issue of gender, but we see this in the issue of of abortion. We see this in the issue of other life issues, right? But ultimately what it comes down to is, is these are people, people who are loved and created by God. And, um, and God desires to give them that peace and that identity. Um, and so we have a, we have a really fantastic message and life affirming message to share um, that can bring them much joy. Um, and you're right. It is, it is in finding yourself in the, in who uh, God has made you to be. That's all I had. And I appreciate everyone's thoughts on that. Michelle, I'll turn it over to you for our last news story. Yeah. Last news story. So here's the thing. I have the oddball story. How does it even, how is it even a life issue? So uh, Ted Kaczynski um, passed away just this last week uh, on Saturday. And for those of you who are older than me, you know who Ted Kaczynski is. Probably the three of you had to look him up, um, but he was the Unabomber uh, and and um, was really eluded police for quite some time um, in the in the eighties and nineties. Uh, he sent some bombs in the mail, and and really um, it, he was a highly intelligent individual. He was very recluse. He he worked as a professor for a time. He went to college as a very young man highly intelligent. I think if I remember correctly, his IQ was like 167. So, you know, on, on that upper end and instead of, instead of keeping those jobs that he was doing, he, he um, removed himself from society. He went and lived in a home out in the middle of nowhere, Montana, um, and really believed that the government and society were bad. In particular, um, he believed that modern life should be destroyed because number one, it was hurting the environment. And number two, because people were becoming alienated, that technology, and of course, with the advent of the personal computer and the personal phone and those sort of things, that they were alienating people. And, and he's, um, his manifesto was published um, in newspapers he was eventually caught and he's been in prison for quite some time. So he, he died at 81 years old this last Saturday. Some people, the news has not been clear, but the last article that I read mentioned um, the probability of suicide, uh, which brings a whole nother life issue in that we could talk about. Um, so what about, what about Ted Kaczynski? So he sent these bombs, um, some bombs killed people. Uh, as he intended, like he bombed uh, a guy who was working in a computer store. Uh, he bombed a, an individual who um, was working for a, a forestry company, right? So someone who was was helping buy land and and then harvest the trees on them. So clear connection to the environment. So what do you think? Do we mourn the death of Ted Kaczynski as for life people? He did some pretty awful things, has this manifesto that says the way to, to fix the problems in the world is by attacking others, by seeking revenge. This is one that I'm like, I keep going back and forth. Like, obviously he was a person that was created in the image of God. 
And there were people that loved him. Like, he was obviously born to a mother and father. They had to have shown him affection at some point in his life. Or you hope they did anyways. I don't know his whole background. I mean, you you hope that he met people while he was in prison that would have upheld and affir affirmed his life. And maybe he had people who were there to befriend him and help him see the error of his ways but the other side of it that I keep coming back to is did that actually happen though you know it's it's a lot of hypotheticals for me of like obviously he he is and was someone who was created in the image of God but beyond that I don't know what to say about him because I don't know what what things all happened in his life to get him to the point where he was right I mean you said he he was a loner and he isolated himself and, you know, there's the possibility of suicide. So we see those life issues of not being included, but how much of that was things that were brought onto him and how much did he bring onto himself, you know? So right. I'm, I'm in this like back and forth spiral of yes, we should and no, we shouldn't because I keep thinking of all the what ifs outside of he was created in the image of God and had a creator who, you know, had a purpose for his life. So. Well, and you, you're absolutely right. That's what we come back to, right? That, that every human being, no matter what they do in the world is created in the image of God. Right. And um, it doesn't mean that, that we don't have, they can't suffer the consequences of their actions. Right. But, um, and we certainly don't applaud things that they've done that are evil. And yet um, we recognize that, that, this is a this is a soul, a, a human being. This that a soul, right? And a soul lost. And 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 we hope that someone intervened in his life. And yet, when we look at who his friends were, other bombers, right? Um, in his high high um, risk facility or uh, you know in, in jail, you, there's there's certainly some question there. So since his death, there's been kind of and even before his death, there's been you know, kind of this, this following of his, right. Um, and mostly people are intrigued by his approach, right? His approach was to take justice into his own hands. So what do you, again, what do you think about that? When we think of God's, God's life affirming quality, his nature, the kingdom of the left, the kingdom of the right, his alien work, which is the law, um, and his and his right right work um, of forgiveness. What are, what are your thoughts? I certainly think that. Well, you can you can see kind of the appeal of his ideas because in a lot of ways technology has done some damage to relationships and in person. Right, isn't Gen Z like the loneliest? You know, they don't they hang out with their friends the least, and all these things are kind of antisocial um, and yeah, with industrialization in the last 200 years, um, things have changed. And in some ways, probably negatively, also in some good ways. But I think that activism needs to be within the bounds of the law, especially something like, well, no, I'll just say that it needs to be within the bounds of the law. Yeah, I don't think that bombing, I don't think his approach was effective, nor was it moral. So um I'll just put it with that, put it at that. I mean, as Christians, like we can say so many things about taking justice into our own hands, but I mean, ultimately as Christians, we know that vengeance belongs to God and you could 
probably read off a hundred verses about God saying, don't repay evil with evil. It's up to me. Let, let, let him do the work on that. So. Absolutely. And I think if anything, you know, his Ted Kaczynski's is emblematic of, of a life lived without others. Right. And, um, and, and this, this darkness, this, this dead end, besides the fact that there's probably some mental health issues going on there, but, but we need each other, right? We were made for each other. And, um, and he had, he had alienated himself from everyone. Right. And his, and his thoughts turned very dark. Um, and I think we so often, we so often don't want to recognize that um, there, there is the human condition is broken. There is a, is a darkness in the human condition. Right. And so we need God to intervene, God to come into that human condition, into that brokenness and to heal and to give love and, and, and joy and, and new life. Um, and he, he had none of those things, even the people that were his family. And you're right, Corey, he did have a family. He had a brother who actually is still alive and, and parents who um, by all, you know, accounts loved and, and cared for him. And yet uh, we see him withdrawing from, from those gifts of family. Um, he was ostracized from his brother and, and turned in on himself. And I think, again, you know, life issues can develop in a variety of ways. Um, and one of those ways is, I, I believe, I firmly believe when we separate ourselves from the gift of others, from, from the gift of, of human beings that God, you know, and vocations. Um, he had no, his, his vocation was to serve himself. And, and that's not what we're made for. I do want to point out too, I think it's interesting that, you know, he believed that technology was alienating people, yet he alienated himself. I don't know, I guess, how self-serving do you have to be to like point out the flaws in others or the, you know, perceived flaws in others, but then to act on those same things yourself and alienate yourself? I just, there's obviously mental health there that, like you said, Michelle, probably wasn't addressed. And I just think that that's something that I hope we see an upswing in Gen Z of wanting to spend time with others, because I do see that we're more self-serving and want to be more alone and not be in community so much anymore. And so I'm hoping that we soon, with activities picking back up post-COVID and all that, we see Gen Z really wanting to go out and, and be in community. And we need it. We need We need community. Yeah, I think that the idea of justice too, and Kate, you you nailed it. <clears throat> we know that justice, that vengeance, and and that making things right, these things belong to God, right? And it's not just in this case, um, in Ted Kaczynski's life and death, but in in many other cases, right? Um, we just talked about today the idea of of abortion and um the consequences of that again justice belongs to god just god has already won the battle and we have the opportunity to share the good news uh that every life every life is loved every life has been handmade 
every life is valuable. And I think in, in this world, it's hard to remember that. It's hard to remember that, that justice is God's and that he has already won the battle. And But it's good to be reminded that we get to share the message. Uh, that's what we get to be, the gospel-motivated voices that carry that into the future. Any final comments? All right. Well, thanks for joining us this week of Table Talks for Life. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed what's on the table today, that you'll like our podcast, and that you'll come back next week. Uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for joining the Y for Life team for today's Table Talk for Life. We hope you're better equipped to address today's life issues and uphold the people God has placed in your path. Be sure to check out our programs and resources at yforlife.org or email michelle at yforlife.org to find out more about how you can be a gospel-motivated voice for life. And we hope you'll join us next time right here at Youth for Life Podcast.